Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsipornchai. Well, brother, yet again, it is good to see you. Always a pleasure to be back on and, and uh, feeling extra um, enthusiastic about this topic that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it's amazing how much pushback this topic gets. Yeah, and of course, when we talk about uh, what this topic is, we are talking about the topic of the church. Um, there are few doctrines in the Bible that are, I think are, are more central. Uh, in fact, I, for the Christian, I think our presence here on earth until the Lord takes us up, it should be centered around the church. Um, so it's a central doctrine, and yet one that is twisted and distorted and uh, misrepresented and misunderstood in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it. I think we've both been posting about this in the last couple of weeks in various venues, and I get questions about it just in general. Um, you know, specifically, I want to kind of hone in and talk about church membership. Um, it it sounds very formal, and and instantly. The, the very first pushback I get when we talk about joining a local church, being committed to a local church or a church having, you know, kind of a more formalized membership is, well, I don't see that in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. What, yeah, what do you I, I say hear to that. that, brother? Well, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the number one complaint. Um, membership is nowhere in the Bible. Um, what I would say back to that is, well, it's also not um, that there's no commandment saying not to do it, right? So, I mean, there's no, there's no prohibitions. There, there's nothing in there that, that says we can't use a, a tool like membership. But I will say that the principles that go behind membership, I think, are absolutely biblical. Uh, we are going to stand and have to give an account for the souls that uh, we, we watch over. And for every person that belongs to a church, there should be someone that you clearly identify as your shepherd, um, as your pastor, as the um, local body that you identify with, um, and there are a lot of people who are, for instance, church hoppers that go from church to church to church. And there is a practical element in all this that for people like you and me, I want to know who it is who's actually committed to our church body if I need to help them. Yeah. Right. If, um, if I know, for instance, um, that someone is going through an issue, but they actually identify with another church, then I, I know that that's, that's going to be the, the responsibility of that shepherd of that church to take care of them. It doesn't mean I won't provide any kind of counsel or advice, but I'm going to push them towards that shepherd, because what I don't want to do is to give one set of advice that um, in some ways may contradict something else that another person says, and now we've got uh, two different people um, going against each other. So I think there are sound biblical principles we can find in the Bible that support uh, the idea of membership, and it really is just committing to a local body, and uh, for the leaders there, it's, it helps them to know who is committed. Um, because just like everyone else, we have to triage our efforts. Yeah. You know, when people come and, and they request help, uh, we want to be able to help everyone. Uh, but the reality sometimes is that we can't. And so we will prioritize those who are members of the church. And one example, and I know I'm kind of talking a lot here, but one example that, I, that just comes to mind is, for instance, when people ask for money. And we get that a lot. Mm. You know, people are, you know, they're on hard times and they want money from the church. Um, well, sometimes I get that from people that don't even attend. And, and the reality is that, look, the, the church doesn't exist as, as, um, as this kind of banking system to give out money to um, everyone on the streets. It would be nice if we could, but that's totally impractical. Yeah. And so we have to prioritize those who are in the church, those who are actually a part of the church. And that's biblical. I mean, even when Paul talks about widows in 1 Timothy 5, he makes it very clear. These are people in the church who have been serving in the church and serving faithfully for quite some time. Yeah, no, that's good stuff, brother. And typically my first response is, and normally it's a jarring response, is put your finger on the scripture that talks about the Trinity and you can't do it. And it's just to make the point, look, we understand that there are plenty of doctrines that scripture makes clear and teaches, yet it's not just a single passage that's kind of you know, points to that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, we have a lot of passages of uh, Scripture that, in fact, I would say the New Testament really does make, doesn't make any sense uh, apart from a concept of the church. So a lot of people, uh, in fact, we've run into this a lot. A lot of people just don't attend a church at all. And for some, I understand it's because they can't find a good church to attend. For some people, they just don't think it's necessary. 
And my question is, how is it that you can actually read the New Testament and understand any of it outside the concept of a church? Because this is, the New Testament is addressed to churches. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. The commandments, the gifts given to um, to us as believers is for the edification of the church. Um, we have one access to, to God, uh, God the Father in one spirit together um, as a church. And so there, there's so many verses that just come flooding to my mind that assumes that you're with a body of believers, that you are gathering together with, uh, with other fellow believers. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to kind of go through a bunch of those. I mean, you've got First Corinthians, you've got Galatians, you've got Ephesians, you've got First Timothy, you've got Hebrews. All of those speak to having a commitment to a local body. And so if you're, you know, for those guys who are out there thinking, well, the Bible doesn't really talk to it. No, you're wrong. It, it actually implies it all throughout and not in overly subtle ways when you take the time to look at it. But, you know, I mean, I like to ask a, a few questions up front. Uh, one, of, one of the questions I like to ask is, well, just what is your problem with the idea of being committed to a local church? Well, why is that an issue for you that you feel the need to fight against? Yeah, that's that, that's a good question. And I, I would suspect, um, I, I think people hate the feeling that it feels like a corporation, um, that, that there's so much organization that uh, that starts to feel more man-centric. Um, but that's a that's a false dichotomy because people tend to think that organization is is an invention of men and not of God. Well, God is an, is a God of order. Um, we yeah. know that in First Corinthians, especially when you read through the spiritual gifts, especially when you get to chapter you know, chapters twelve and fourteen, and you read through fourteen, and Paul yeah. establishes the fact that look, these gifts are meant to be practiced in a very specific way because God is not a God of chaos; He is a God of order. And in terms of having a sort of hierarchy, if you will, within the church. Well, God is the one who instituted uh, pastors and shepherds um, or elders and overseers for that very purpose. And it doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. First Corinthians 12 makes clear that all the gifts given to everyone within the body, they're all necessary, they're all needed, even the ones that are not as as, as visible or as as audibly heard as, as others, but we give them honor anyway. And so I think there's there's just this pushback against organization. And I understand because in our history, there's a lot of churches that have been overly legalistic and have um, have overemphasized it to the point of legalism rather than use it as, as a vehicle for the glory of God. And, and that's that's really what we're after. We, we don't want church to be for the sake of organization by itself, but rather the organization to be a vehicle or glorifying God through the church. You know, the other side of that coin are the guys who have been, I mean, particularly Americanized, right? They want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to feel like they have to answer to anyone. They don't want to, you know, they want to do their own thing. It's kind of that American dream. I'm free and I'm free from everyone, anyone, you know, you're not the boss of me feeling. And so we got kind of both of those uh, those thoughts out there. But you mentioned 1 Corinthians 12. So let me actually just read the first couple verses uh, from chapter 12 there. Actually, I'll skip down to verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, we understand this is talking about the greater body of Christ. But you know what, brother? I think we've got a lot of just Quasimodo Christians out there. We've got an arm flopping around on their own, walking around saying, I don't need a foot, right? There's an eyeball walking over there. Uh, quite happy that all they can do is is see and, you know, they can't walk, they can't hear, they can't talk. And it all comes from misunderstanding of what our function is together and how important the body of Christ is together to be committed to one another. And you, you made a good point. You can't really exercise the gifts God's given you if you aren't committed to a local body and know where to exercise those gifts, right? We are giving gifts for our own sake, we're supposed to serve and love one another, and you can't do that if you're not committed to a local body, right? Yeah, all the gifts and talents that God gives us, and, and a talent, and I would distinguish a talent being something that you're naturally given from birth and a gift is something you're given by the Holy Spirit upon conversion. But all the gifts and talents that you have, the, the greatest usage of them is for the glory of God within the church. You know, and it's, um, I, I think of these, you know, voice competitions that we see on TV that, you know, my wife and I will enjoy watching that once in a while. It's amazing the amount of, of talent that uh, God-given talent some people have. But it's, um, it grieves the heart sometimes when you hear of someone who has grown up within the church and now they think that the best exercise of their gift is to become a pop singer 
um, when really, you, you know, your gifts should be for the glory of God uh, within the church to help bring people to Christ. But you brought up a, a good point about culture, and I think that's a very important point in that we want to be independent, at least in our culture we do. We live in a culture of independence, um, rely upon no one, be self-sufficient, um, get rich quick. And even before I was saved, I at one time had the, uh, had the dream myself that I wanted to be retired by the time I was in my 30s. Uh, well, I ended up getting saved in my 30s, and uh, my my world kind of changed, went upside down in terms of its priorities. But that is the world that we live in, and it's very American. It's very much a, a part of the fabric of American culture for us to to, to be totally self sufficient and have all these things, and and to not rely upon anyone else. And we bring that uh, really into our church experience by saying, "Well, you know what? I've been independent up until now." I don't need anyone uh, in, in addition to that. But as we look at that 1 Corinthians 12 passage you just read, um, we are baptized um, into one body, and there is both a universal body as well as a local body. But the word for church, um, the Greek word ekklesia, literally the, the Greek is a compound of two words, uh, meaning to be called out. So we are called out, but the word conveyed the meaning of congregation, assembly, or gathering. It, yeah. we, we connect it today to a technical meaning of a Christian church, but realize that when Jesus Christ brought it up first in Matthew chapter 16, there was no concept of a Christian church at that point. So he was using a common word that was understood by people to mean people who are gathering together. And so when he said, on this rock, I will build my church, that was shortly after the confession of Peter, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus was very intentional in using that word, um, that those who would follow him, that group of people that would follow him, he used a word that cannot be separated from the idea of people coming together. Again, congregation, uh, assembly, um, gathering. Um, these are people that are coming together. And even in that day when Jews often met in synagogues because the temple was too far away from them, they had been scattered and they had to set up their own places uh, to meet together. Synagogue comes from the Greek word soon ago, uh, ago, which means to literally, to, again, to come together. Um, so all throughout the history of God's people, going all the way back to the Old Testament, and I'm not saying that Israel was the church or the church is Israel. I believe that um, that there are very distinct definitions for each. There can be some overlap for Jews who confess Jesus Christ. But when you go all the way back to the beginning when God called his people, what is it that he wanted them to do? He wanted them to come to the tabernacle or the temple to worship God together. That is a constant throughout scriptures. And to think that that suddenly goes away because Jesus Christ died for our sins and we no longer need that, well, that goes against the very language of what we read here in 1 Corinthians 12, that those gifts are for one another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, there's no such thing as a lone Christian, right? That's totally foreign to Scripture. It's antithetical to what we see in Scripture. You just can't separate yourself from the body of Christ and say that you are you know, functioning as a biblical Christian. Uh, we just can't do that. Good question always to ask when we're talking about this is not to come to the text with some kind of preconceived notion of what it does or doesn't say, which I think a lot of people do when we talk about being a member of a church, right? Well, scripture doesn't say that. Uh, a better question would be, what does the scripture say? D is it explicit? If it's not explicit, is it implicit? And, and let's answer those questions. And we, we have all these passages that talk about it. In, in fact, in the uh, few chapters back in 1 Corinthians, right? If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, this is where Paul's saying that there, there's been a report of some immorality in the church. Um, I don't remember exactly what, what had happened. But anyway, he's dealing with that. Um, he's saying that he's not there, but he's present in spirit. He's already judged this person. I, I, sexual immorality, if I remember yeah, correctly. Right. He's already judged this person. And it's interesting because he, he chastises the whole group of people as one yeah. unit, right? Because they have not yet put this one out. Um, and, and so it implies that they are functioning as one body, one family, one unit. Um, he, he doesn't just... Uh, you know, reprimand one person. He reprimands the whole body of believers there because they yeah. haven't put this wicked man out from among themselves. So it's just one place in Scripture where, I mean, Paul's dealing with a single issue in the church, and that's in that area, right, in, in Corinth, and he lumps them all together as a family unit. Well, 
uh, that implies that there is a known commitment. They're a known family unit. It's a single group, not not just solely a bunch of individuals that can come and go and do as they please. Um, so I saw this uh, Corinthians five, First Corinthians five. Um, you know, and then after we have that, um, Paul goes on to talk about, well, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Let, let me actually just pull this up real quick here. Yeah, 1 through 13. So, so Paul goes on to say uh, in 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I mean, there's a lot about commitment in those passages, right? He, he, makes, he makes the distinction between those are who are in and those are who and those who are out. Well, there has to be some known commitment before you could make that uh, distinction, right? Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. That that means that someone has identified as being with the church and not merely just attending, um, and someone who's identifying with the church and is unrepentant in these uh, sins. The idea of removing them and the words of Jesus Christ going back to Matthew eighteen is that you're to treat that person as uh, as a gentile or a tax collector, meaning an unbeliever an unbeliever who's unrepentant. Um, so, no, that's, that, that is a very good point. Um, there is implied there um, some, some accounting of who's actually in the church and, uh, and, and also a responsibility to take someone out of that church um, because of this uh, unrepented sin. And this is clearly not church universal. Uh, this is talking about an application within the local church, which, uh, you know, you think about the letters that Paul writes. I mean, we call it First Corinthians, because he's writing to the church of Corinth. We call, yep. call Ephesians because he's writing to the church at Ephesus and Galatians and Philippians and all that. So, no, that's, um, that, that is a great point. Yeah, and, and so he goes on, and we see this in so many uh, different letters. Oftentimes, he deals with very specific, you know, single issues that force you to acknowledge he's speaking of just a local body, whereas oftentimes we think, well, he wrote to the church. Well, we don't think that he wrote to the church in Corinth, right? We just think, oh, 1 Corinthians. Right. Uh, but no, he's writing to a specific church. Ephesians, right? He is writing to the church of Ephesus. Uh, and, and he goes on and on, and oftentimes we see those things. So again, the fact that he's putting all of these believers together, you know, implies that there's a known commitment. But even beyond that, I mean, let's just talk about the fact that they have the expectation of administering church discipline. That in and of itself implies a commitment with the expectation to hold one accountable and to submit to the authority of that church, does it not? Yeah, and that's, that would be the second time that Jesus Christ brought up the word church. Um, the first time was in Matthew 16. The second time was in Matthew 18. Um, and so in both cases, he is talking about a people who are gathered together. Um, so that that is absolutely the expectation that people are to coming together. Now in Ephesus, um, I've just gone through teaching um, Ephesians, and Ephesus was a large area. It's possible that there um, there were a kind of a network of churches, and not merely just one single church, and that the letter was circulated uh, amongst those churches. But nevertheless, there's still an implication that there are people that are gathering, whether it's in one spot or multiple spots throughout that uh, that area. And on top of that as well. If you're a Christian at that time, where else do you get to hear the letter of Paul except by actually going to the church to hear it? That's exactly where they, they heard it. It was read out loud to the believers who were gathered. So the letters themselves um, don't make sense apart from understanding that people were gathered together in order to hear those letters. And the fact that we have all these letters named after all these different areas uh, Paul was writing to very specific issues um, in each one of these areas. These, the letter to Corinth uh, probably has more issues uh, listed here than any other church, but those issues were very um, specific to what was happening in Corinth. When he's writing to Galatia, it's a different kind of um, attack. You've got the attack of the Judaizers bringing um, a false gospel, right? And uh, in, um, in, in Philippi, he's writing to a group of believers who are concerned about persecution, and so each, um, each area has its own church, has its own gathering, has its own needs and struggles that it's going through. Even the book of Revelation, what does Jesus do in the opening chapters? He is providing John uh, the words for seven different letters to seven different churches um, at that time. All, all of it assuming that in those areas you have a local gathering. So the church is not always just the universal. It is often referring to that local. 
Yeah, that's a good point, brother. And you brought up Galatians. I think it's Galatians 2, uh, 2 or 3. I think it's 2, um, where he's, they're dealing with the Judaizers. And uh, here, I want to pull that up to 2 and specifically verse 4. Listen to what this says. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. I mean, the, the language is important there because, again, he there's a it, in order for someone to sneak in as a false brethren, there has yeah. to be like a single known unit. Right. Um, and 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 it assumes that they knew each other. They knew yeah. who belonged in that group, right? Otherwise, how would you find, you know, someone secretly sneaking in? Um, so, again, you find this kind of language over and over when you just read the text and kind of take a step back. There's no way to get around the fact that these men were, you know, a single unit, that they were committed to each other, that they knew each other, that there was an expectation of uh, keeping one another accountable. So, there was no kind of this, um, it, you know, you ain't the boss of me. I, if I don't like it here, I'm just going to go there. Uh, interestingly enough, if, if you know your church history back at that times, often letters would accompany people who were moving from one city to another um, that would effectively say, this is a brother, um, you know, he, he's, he's good to go, so to speak. And so it wasn't just like people hopped around from place to place to place without any recognition of who they were, um, you know, certainly they would have known if people were disciplined uh, in one area, it, it would have spread. But if you look at this language again, there in, in this Galatian passage, you know, they were meeting together. They knew who was the committed part of that group. And because they knew that, they could tell when someone, you know, secretly came in to the group trying to create division. And so Paul's dealing with that here. Yeah, even when Paul met with the elders uh, from Ephesus at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he mm -hmm. tells them that savage wolves are, wolves are going to come in from among you. We know the warning from Jesus that there are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Um, they're going to look like us. Um, we know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, so there has to be a recognition of um, who identifies with Christ and, and who doesn't. And within the church, we would encourage unbelievers to come and join the service. We always do that, right? So yeah, come, absolutely. Come and, and sit in on it, on it and, and come as long as you like. Um, I know John MacArthur um, would sometimes address them and at one time said, if you're an unbeliever and you've been attending, recognize you're going to be held to an even greater, you're going to be held to even greater judgment for everything that, that you're hearing. Um, so there, there is, um, we do invite them and we do recognize that God, um, you know, God is going to hold them accountable for what it is they're hearing, but it is a very different um, situation with someone who's pretending to be a believer, but is really mm -hmm. an unbeliever and is living in unrepentant sin or trying to um, drive people out. And let me read this uh, from Philippians chapter one, the book of Philippians, the very first commandment comes in verse 27. And it's uh, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul, and he does this often in many of his letters, he calls upon believers to conduct themselves in a manner um, that is worthy of the gospel itself. So the gospel is not merely what you accept um, or, or what you confess in order to become a Christian. It is the standard by which you are to live. But mm. what does he go on to say? He says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So even his opening command and how he goes to explain the best way to live out that command, you cannot understand that apart from the idea that you're yeah. gathering together with fellow brothers and sisters because his command is to stand together. And he continues that on to chapter two when he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How are you going to do that unless you actually identify with the church and you're with believers and meeting with believers and fellowshipping with believers and you know those believers, you're praying for them, they're praying for you, you're keeping each other accountable, you, you know each other's lives and, and all of that stuff. If you're living individually, these commandments simply don't make sense. Yeah, that's a good point, brother. I mean, look, so look, if, for the guys who have just opted to not go to church, present situation even excluded in a normal non 
pandemic, not that we're in a real pandemic, but anyway, you've got guys who say, oh yes, I, I'm a believer. I love Jesus. I love the body, but I haven't been to church in six months. How are you standing with the brethren? <laughs> right? Yeah. You're not. You can't come to any other conclusion if you're honest. Uh, and so you just simply can't be obedient if you're not doing that. You know, we can go to Ephesians. So we mentioned that earlier. Ephesians 4, 25 mm-hmm. there, uh, says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Right. Um, again, you know, how can you be, how can you speak truth to one another? How can you be, uh, say that you're members of one another if you never gather, right, right. with the local church? That's, that's exactly. And, and even at the start of that same chapter, Ephesians chapter four, uh, Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling yep. by, with which you have been called. Same, it's a very similar commandment to Philippians 1.27. Yep. But he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You can't even separate these commandments where he says, live according to the gospel. You can't even separate that from his desire for us to be united, to be together. And even the uh, great high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, the longest recorded prayer that we have in the Bible is in John chapter 17. And Jesus, towards the end of that, he prays not only for the disciples, but for everyone who's going to come to believe. But he prays that they would be one, that they would be united together. And he emphasizes that word one and the word unity over and over again, just in a few short verses. Um, And that, again, assumes that uh, we are connected to one another. So sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to go to the church because it's full of hypocrites, um, which you know, it's it's one thing, you know, it's it's funny. It's like, okay, so are you expecting people at church to be perfect? Yeah. Um, because on the other hand, we have people that complain how legalistic church is, um, how there's too much organization, there's too much legalism, and other people are complaining that it's not perfect enough. That's like okay. saying, I don't want to go to the gym because there are fat people there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Or, you, you know, it's, um, I, I think, I can't remember who said it, but I think it's a good analogy that the church is like a hospital. You know, you go to the hospital for for healing, for treatment, and, and that's what the church is for. Yeah. Um, the, the church is not for perfect people. It is for imperfect people who are being transformed into the image of the Son of God. And that's that process doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. It takes time. We come together, and, and, and as these verses mention, that's why Paul emphasizes that with humility and gentleness, with patience, show tolerance for one another in love. Why would he emphasize that? Because otherwise, it is difficult to get along with one another. But our bond in Christ should be what uh, really holds us together, which is why he goes on to say in verses 4 to 6, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called, and one hope you are calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Mm-hmm. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. The idea is this. We gather together, and all whatever differences we have in our life pale in comparison to what we have in common, which is we are in one body, we have one spirit, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That should bring us together. And so being a part of a church, it takes work, um, but it's also hugely rewarding. And I can just say personally, um, we've over the past year, and obviously this has been an unusual year with COVID and, and some people really wanting to wait to get vaccines, and, and certainly some people are in those higher risk categories. I can tell you this, for everyone that has been away for a while, and, and our services are online, so they've been watching it online, for everyone who's been away for a, for a while, watching it online, and then coming back in person, each and every single person, to, to a man, to a woman, each and every one of them said, it's not the same. Uh, it, yeah. It's great that we have this online thing that we can see you preach, that we can sing along online, but it's not the same as being there in person. And that's what happens when you establish a family. You you don't spend time with your family over Zoom. You spend time with your family gathering together for a Thanksgiving meal, you know, or for um, Easter weekend, uh, Resurrection Sunday, or whatever the uh, occasion might be. You gather together and you build and and, uh, reinforce those bonds by face-to-face contact. Yeah. And I think even just the natural responses we've seen of, you know, people hugging their families for the first time, right? It's such an emotional thing. I I mean, is evidence of 
the difference between an in-person gathering and meeting and a Zoom thing, right? There was a pastor earlier today in Canada who is standing trial, and this was his art. This was part of his argument, right? James Coates was, look, it's not the same. You know, only fifteen percent of the people I think could meet, and so they're excluding what the the other eighty five percent. And uh, some arguments have been tried to make for the the Zoom thing, the online thing. We weren't called to do that. You can't um, you can't edify each other. You can't use the gifts, right? If you're not joined together. And so here in America, you know, I mean, we, we so we've got guys in Canada, churches who have been forced underground. Um, to just to be faithful. And then here in America, we've got so many Americans who are basically saying, ah, I, I just don't want to go. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and whenever I hear someone say that, hey, you know, they're, and from people who are Christian, I mean, I look at you on Twitter, you know, pretty quickly just by looking at a person's profile. I do see a lot of people who um, would call themselves Christians and they said they will be the first to say, why don't you just worship online? You have that option. Just worship online. You don't need to gather together. And, and I can't help but to think that people who say that are never truly connected uh, with the body of Christ. Um, because just in my experience directly and from people that I know, the people who are the most connected to church, the people who are actually plugged in, um, that they know their fellow brothers and sisters, they enjoy being around each other. Yeah. They are the last people that will say that, even if um, they believe it's important to get the vaccine and, and whatnot, um, they, they still uh, will concede how much they miss uh, being around um, other people. And, and even in the business world, uh, we know this. I mean, I, it's, uh, I worked in corporate America for, uh, for around 20 years uh, before I became a senior pastor. And video technologies became very popular. We would have video conferences. We had dedicated video conference rooms uh, where I worked. Um, but we also understood that while those things are nice, um, it's not the same thing as being in person with with someone else. Uh, a salesperson will be the first to tell you as well. If you really want to close a major deal, you better be there in person to yeah. talk to the person face to face because there is no substitute for being there in person. And so if we know that's true in a secular sense, what makes us think that's uh, that's not true in, in a spiritual sense? And And that's just a reflection of the fact that God did not make mankind to live alone. I mean, we see that it, from the very beginning, right? It's not good for man to live alone. That's not just in the marital relationship, but we, you know, are made for community. Um, and and so when when believers reject that community, we still see the natural evidences of it, even from the outside world. And so you got guys who hate God. They haven't seen their loved ones. They've been Zooming over all the holidays. And all of a sudden you see, um, you know, Twitter pictures where they've hugged their mother or their father for the first time in a year. And it's so emotional because guess what? We're made to have physical, tangible contact with one another. And even more so in the body of Christ, we need that. You know, that Ephesians passage we referenced earlier in four, I mean, it goes on to say, um, you know, it's interesting. Everyone knows this particular verse, be angry and yet do not sin. But it's yeah. almost always taken out of context. Um, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let me just read a few more verses past that. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. I mean, there is, there's no way you can read that and not walk away with the fact that these are people who are committed doing life with each other. Yes. Right. They need to forgive because they're together. Right. And there's tension when you put people together. Um, I mean, just I, I, again, we we work so that we can share amongst those, you know, of us in the church who have need. That's a part of life in the church. You can't edify one another if you're doing online, yeah. quote unquote, church. And mm -hmm. I say that because church isn't online. You can't live this passage at all if you aren't committed to a local body. 
You just can't do it. Yeah, there, there's the, the Bible and the New Testament in particular filled with one another's. Um, there are dozens and dozens of commandments about one another's. Uh, love, love one another, um, encourage one another. Um, you can just find them over and over again throughout. And again, um, if you are living by yourself and a lone wolf Christian, how do you make sense of that? Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. people will say, well, I just go out in the street and encourage people. That's not the church. Um, yeah. It's great that you go out and meet people and, and uh, you try to have a positive influence on them, but that's not the church. Yeah, and, this and is I the context that, of the church, right? That's right. That's the, right. Letting the sun, not letting the sun go down in your anger is not talking about husbands and wives, right? That applies, but this is in yeah. the context of the church. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a great point. That is a great point. And, and even uh, coming together for the Lord's table, right? When we come together for communion, it's an, it's an assumption that we are gathering together. And even when Paul calls us to examine ourselves, we often make that uh, surely individual that we just look at ourselves, see if there are sins there. But we've got to remember that that's within the context of the church gathering together. And the question is, have you done anything to violate a fellow brother in Christ? Or have you neglected a need? Have you failed to ask for forgiveness for something or failed to give forgiveness for something? Um, all of that is is within the context of a body of Christ that is supposed to be gathered together. But I think of John chapter 13 as well. What does mm. Jesus Christ say? He says, they will know you by your love for one another. If you are not gathered together, how are they going to know your love, right? You know, yeah. and, and just think think about our family member. Well, just think about husband and wife and spouses, right? I mean, if, if husbands and wives are not together and there are, one of them is always traveling on the road and the other one's always home and they're never spending time together, where is the evidence of the love for each other, right? Yeah. Now, sometimes you, you understand, I used to travel a lot and sometimes those work circumstances um, dictate, but at some point, you know, you, you got to be able to say, look, I need to spend time with my family. And it's often those who um, don't spend time with their family and their wife and their, their children that end up regretting it later on. So we understand that love cannot be, uh, cannot be communicated in a, any sustainable way apart from actually being together. Again, Jesus Christ said, yeah. I'll know you by your love for one another. Yeah, that's not love for the world, right? Which, again, lots of people take that to mean. That's love for the body of Christ. And, I mean, that's a great point, brother. You know, if you painted a picture of kind of what we see in the Western world in American church, uh, and, and you use the family as an example, basically, we've got a bunch of Christians who have done this. Let's assume they're married, they have a family, and the husband has basically said, you know what, man, I just so love you guys. I, I love you, my wife. I love you, my children. But um, I, there's this really awesome apartment across town. You guys stay and live here. I'm going to go live in that apartment because, man, I just I, I enjoy being by myself. And, and occasionally when I feel like it, when it's convenient, uh, I'll just zoom in. I'll, I'll just zoom in and, and have a meal with you guys because, you know, we, we can we can share a meal time together. You know, right, that's right. just asinine. It's insane to even contemplate. In fact, it's so stupid that everyone listening is just like, well, that, that's just a ridiculous illustration. It's exactly what Christians are doing all, all over the U.S., right? They could go to church. The churches, and we're talking about you know the folks who there's a church available. It's a biblical church. They just aren't going because they don't want to. And I would argue for most of those people, I, I doubt that they even Zoom in regularly or they, they're even watching the services. But that's effectively what they're doing. You know, they're saying, oh, man, I love you guys so much. I want to be with you. And, but, you know, I'll just Zoom in occasionally. It's the same yeah, thing. Exactly. And, and not only um, are they probably not Zooming in regularly, but recognize that when you watch something from home, it's different from being there in person at church. Yeah. And in fact, I just heard this from a fellow brother um, the other day that when he's at home, um, he has the temptation of just leaning back in his recliner. And when he does that, he's more likely to just you know, pass out, uh, not literally, but to fall asleep or, or to yeah. get distracted. And when we're at home, the, you know, the phone can ring, there, uh, there, there's the TV, there may be your cell phones, whatever. You, you can be so much more easily distracted. And from another family that I know, um, they, they would say that when they were home, their tendency was to um, start preparing uh, breakfast at the time that the service would start. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and then, of course, as you're getting prepared for breakfast and serving out dishes and all that stuff, you know, you're not really paying attention to what's yeah. being said. So even as you're watching in Zoom, um, chances are you're not fully um, plugged in. You're not fully 
uh, tuned into everything that's being said and everything um, that that people are doing. And and so and <clears throat> going back to we talked about reverence earlier on. There, there, I think there's a loss of reverence for God mm-hmm. as well um, through yeah. these experiences um, because we just treat it like um, like a more noise at, at, at the house as if the TV was playing in the background. You know, sometimes we turn on a game and, and uh, we'll be watching the game, but we don't need to place our full attention on it. We just need to check at the score and watch a few plays every once in a while. But we can, you know, we can go ahead and socialize and, and talk about other things and check our phone and eat and stuff like that. And so there's through that process, um, we start to make the the, the holy to be um, to be common. Yeah, um, we, we start mm. to profane what, what is what is holy, um, and so that's uh, that that's the other um, concern. And mm. even uh, once again, secular example, people who work from home. Um, there's a lot more people telecommuting, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to work from home. The technology is there, but there are certain positions where that does not work very well, and there are a lot of different types of people where that that does not work very well. Um, just because when they're home and they're by themselves, they're just distracted in a way that they're not when they're actually at the workplace. And anyone who's been in corporate America for any amount of time would affirm that. And uh, yeah. to your point, we we look at these secular examples and then we compare them and it looks like absolute insanity. But I like to use these secular examples because because I try to show people that, look, common sense in the world, for some reason, we throw that out the window when it comes to spiritual realities. It's just like hermeneutics. We, we throw out the regular rules of communication and understanding when we suddenly come to the Bible. Right. And, and people, God is a God of order. He is a God of reason. And uh, he has brought things together. He has made us relational beings. You have brought that up. We are relational beings because God himself is relational. Like God, the, even the, the Trinity, the, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they exist in perfect unity. Husbands and wives, they come together in one flesh, and they're to be united together in that one flesh. The church is multiple members, but we are one body. We are to come together. There, there's relational uh, aspects that God has intended at every single level that we simply just cannot ignore. You're right, brother. The language in scripture is all a unified body, being together, lifting one another up, um, you, you know, using your gifts from one another. There's just no such thing as a, a lone wolf Christian. And the, the language in scripture makes it clear that this is a physical gathering. And, and so, yes, for short seasons when, you know, there's just no other way that the Zoom thing isn't even then a substitute. It's just the best you may have. Um, but when that's no longer true, then you really have no excuse. And I mean, you mentioned the reverence of this. And I think really this is probably, you know, what I suspect is the biggest issue right? Individuals who don't really understand what church is, what it is you're going to do on the Lord's day. Let let me tell you what you're not going to do on the Lord's day. You're not going to hang out with your buddies. You're not going to catch up on what happened during their week. You're not going uh, to build friendships, to make acquaintances. Um, You're not going to sing songs so that you feel better about yourself. That's that's those are things that you're not going. Um, that's not the purpose of the Sunday morning, the Lord's Day gathering. What you are doing is you are going before the King. You are mm-hmm. going to worship the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the One who saved you, and you're doing that with your brothers and sisters. That is what where our hearts should be when we talk about going to the Lord's day. And so you sing songs, but those songs aren't for you. Those songs are for God, right? We are singing um, our thanks. We're singing praise. We're singing of God's holiness. And yes, we benefit from those, but, but that's secondary. Um, and if we get that mixed up, then we can very easily find ourselves saying things like, well, it really doesn't matter if I go. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I can get as much of it uh, on TV as I can here. Well, it's not about you, right? And God didn't call you to get anything out of it from TV. He called you to gather together and worship him. Uh, and all of those other things we do get, we do meet one another and catch up on the week. We do, um, you know, have fellowship. Certainly those are all things that we benefit, but that's not the purpose, uh, so if you lose yeah. the purpose, right. then everything else messes up, right? Yeah, Psalm 122, uh, David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Um, even in the Old Testament, in the days of David, 
Um, there was nothing that would bring more joy to him than saying, let's go to the house of the Lord. I mean, to worship God, and you're right, we gather together, it is not about us, it is about God. And I say this often to my church, that at our church, and I know this is going to be the case at your church as well, but at our church, we want to have a high view of God and a very low view of man. Yeah, and yeah. we come together in order to worship him because he is worthy. But we also come together recognizing that it is a blessed opportunity. This is not an obligation. This is a blessed opportunity to give worship to the one who actually deserves it. Right? We think in a secular term how many people will fawn and, and cry over celebrities and go to concerts. Right, They'll gather together for those kinds of concerts. And people will come back and some of the best concerts are where people are all in it together and they're all screaming and yelling. They're all getting excited about the same things. Well, if you do that in a secular sense uh, and you're, you're really making an idol out of people, you know, how much um, more is it true for the one who actually deserves that kind of worship, that kind of attention, um, who is uh, God himself? Now, the blessing of that, and, and I say this all the time as well, because when we think about, for instance, the Ten Commandments, it starts off with, you shall have no other gods before me, and then second, you shall, you shall make no idols of anything above, on, or below the earth. And so the, the idea there is that there is only one true God. And when people, and there's a lot of critics outside who will say, well, God must be a really selfish and jealous God and this and that and, and whatever. But we know from history that when you are not focused on the one true God, your heart becomes more and more sinful, more and more selfish, uh, more and more rebellious. When your heart is focused on the one true God, it actually has a sanctifying effect on us. So while we go with the purpose of worshiping God, recognize also that through the process of worshiping God, God's going to fill us up um, in a way that's going to sanctify and edify us, yeah. um, both in terms of you know, hearing the word and being able to sing songs together, um, but also in, in just our fellowship with one another through the power of the Spirit working through each one of us. So there is a tremendous blessing that comes out of it, but it is a spiritual blessing that starts with first and foremost putting our focus upon God himself. Great comments, brother. And I would just encourage, you know, guys who maybe are in that place um, who haven't been to church in a while to just ask yourself, why are you? Why do you even go to church? Is it for you, or or is it for God? But because almost always, it's it's the individual has lost the understanding of church, and it may be, you know, a new believer who's just still, you know, really trying to understand what the church is. Uh, we and and there's grace in all of this, you know. But yeah. what you can't do is now hear this and stay where you are. Another uh, comment that I always get is, well, you know, God just loves me the way I am. And he's not upset if I worship him from my living room or I worship him from the church. It, it, you know, <laughs> yeah, see, you, you're shaking your head because you hear this stuff too, right? All the time. And, and I say, okay, well, you know, Jesus has a litmus test for whether or not we love him. He himself said it, right? You love me if you obey my commandments. Right. Were we commanded to gather? Yes or no? You know, if you've ever read anything in your Bible, that yes is the answer if, if you're unsure. Uh, and so, if if we're purposefully knowing that, right? If we're purposefully ignoring that, you know, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Uh, although I honestly and sincerely doubt the salvation of anyone who is happy to miss the gathering for a long period of time. Uh, I just don't know how you can have be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and be comfortable not sitting under the word, not fellowshipping with the believers for an extended period of time by your own choice, right? Yeah, um, that, that's, a, that, that's a great point. The Old Testament um, tells us that God um, is going to give us a new heart, replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and we're going to receive the Holy Spirit within us. And the whole purpose of that is to be able to do what the Israelites had failed to do throughout the Old Testament, which was to follow and obey God. And so, to that point that you made, it can sound like a very legalistic point to someone who may not fully understand why you're saying it. The fact that, hey, if you're content being without a church, I've got to wonder if you truly are regenerate. And the reason is because that when God gives you a new nature, when he gives you a new heart and he gives you his spirit, um, you are guaranteed to bear fruits, uh, that the fruit of, of the spirit. And to me, the fruit of the spirit starts with obeying God. And uh, part of obeying God is loving God's people. And I think the point that someone else made was a really great point that, you know, if you hate the church, then you're essentially hating the bride of Christ because that's who the church is. How can you say you love Christ, but then you hate his bride? Um, yeah. That doesn't make yeah. any sense. You, you wouldn't want to say that. 
And, and so we, we want to not neglect um, the, the gathering. And the other point that I want to bring up, too, and I get this uh, from time to time, um, people will say, well, the church is not a building. Well, if you've been listening to what we've been saying, we're emphasizing people. But with regards to people, they need to gather. And in order to gather, they need a place to gather. And so we, we would say that the building is not the church, but the building is important because that's exactly where people uh, gather on Sunday morning. Now, some have uh, really gone after these house church models. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a conversation with someone recently about that, uh, saying that, you know, the church buildings with, um, you know, over 100 people or 50 people or whatever number you, you get, that's totally unbiblical because in the Bible, people met um, in homes. Um, well, actually, that's not totally true because at the very beginning from the day of Pentecost, there were a lot of people gathering in the temple. Yep. And why yep. wouldn't they? Because yeah. we're talking about how the gospel came to the Jews first and the Jews that received the gospel um, they didn't stop considering themselves Jews. They didn't stop considering the temple to be the place of worship. Why would they? You know, they now have recognized that Jesus Christ is the Messiah they have been waiting for. And so they continue gathering in the temple. And it wasn't until the stoning of the deacon Stephen that the Christians were scattered. Yeah. And now they're going to places where they don't have a large gathering spot like the temple. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to meet in homes. So it's really a practicality of the the, the matter of how their, you know, whatever their situation is at that time, but they are still going to gather together. And uh, and by the time we get these letters from Paul, again, he is writing to cities. He's writing mm-hmm. to believers in various regions and cities. And I would um, I, I would venture to guess that these are not just your standard homes where only five or six people can gather. Um, there are some homes where you can have, have over a hundred people gather together. Oh, yeah. um, I've had gatherings um, here near my home where we, said goodbye to a couple of saints, uh, not goodbye because they left the world, but because they left this area, they moved to mm-hmm. Idaho. And uh, we gathered at uh, someone's house. Um, they had a, a pretty length, a pretty full backyard. They were able to set up a lot of tables. And it turns out they had like over 150 people there. And that backyard was still not jam-packed. Yeah. Um, so there are places where you can um, gather together in larger numbers. And to argue for just a house church model, well, you're going to have to show me in scripture where it says it has to be a house church model and it can't exceed a certain number because that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I mean, and a home is a building, right? I mean, that whole argument is just dumb. You're still meeting in a building. You you just change the general use of it. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's a little harsh, but I very rarely find that argument sincere Right. Most often it's people who are kind of, you know, a gotcha sort of thing. And it's really a straw man because I don't know a single pastor, a single pastor personally, who believes the church is a building. None. Uh, That's right. we understand that we gotta we have to call these structures something. And so you know, well, is is your house a home? No, it's just a structure, and that's it's a home because people live in it who live their lives together. Uh, the building that the church gathers in, we call it a church building, and we reference the people inside as the true church. So I don't know that that those arguments to me are generally ridiculous. I, I think I'll leave room for the few who don't understand that, but I don't see that uh, often. Uh, well, brother, let, let, let's kind of in a lightning round fashion as we wrap up, hit on a few other scriptures that just really um, imply that there is a commitment to one another. Uh, I want I want to hit a few on the pastoral epistles because you know yep. again here yeah. we go. First Timothy three one. It's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Well. I mean, if you're in the office of an overseer, you have to oversee something, right? Yep. And we don't oversee buildings. We oversee people. Amen. Amen to that. And even later in that uh, letter, 1 Timothy 5, when Paul talks about the widows that we have to take care of, we know from the entire Bible that, uh, what does James say? True religion is taking care of widows and, and orphans. But Paul goes on to clarify that, that that's not just any widows. We're, we're not looking to take care of just any widows. But we start within the household of God first, and he has a number of um, prerequisites that uh, he wants people to think through. This must be a widow that has been serving the church um, faithfully. 
um, someone who is of a certain age and has no one else to take care of that woman. Well, once again, that assumes that there's a, a group of people who are able to take care of that person and even to be able to identify the works of that person. And uh, we see that in the book of Acts when he goes to make collections for saints in Jerusalem. You know, he's not making collections for just the poor in, in general, but, but for specifically the poor saints. And he talks to the people in Corinth. He wrote to them saying, look, I'm going to come to you in the first day of the week, and that's when I'm going to gather the, the collection from you. First day of the week is obviously Sunday, um, but that's the, the, based upon the assumption that they're gathering together um, and, and they're giving their money, not just for anyone, but specifically for fellow believers, people who identify um, as believers uh, within Jerusalem. And again, to go into Jerusalem and give it to them assumes that they're gathering somewhere. Yeah. Um, because yeah. you're just not going out to the street saying, hey, are you a Christian? Hey, are you a Christian? Here, take some money. Take, take this and take that. Um, no, it assumes that there's a place where you can find them gathered together. Yeah. And the only way you would know if someone's really faithful in the church is if they participate right? In the life Amen. of the church. It's the only way you know. I mean, again, First uh, Timothy 3, 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The church of God is likened to a family, right? I, I mean, we gave that ridiculous example earlier. How many families, you know, by choice, you're like, hey, I'll just check in every few months and we can Zoom. Um, everyone knows who's in their immediate family, right? Um, and, and the expectation, yeah, yep. yeah, go comment on that, brother. Yeah, it's 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 obvious. Um, we we know our family members, um, and uh, within the church. And l- let me tell you this: Jesus said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Um, he, he's going to bring division between uh, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. And that's not to say that fathers and sons and mothers and daughters should um, separate from one another. But what he is explaining is the reality that those who profess Christ are going to be rejected by their own family. And yeah. we saw that we went to Israel and we were there on a Friday during one of their um, or Saturday during their Sabbath observances. And uh, we, we saw how jam packed the restaurants got. We were staying at a hotel and the restaurants were just jam packed. But all these families come together. They're all singing. They're they're all eating together. It's it's a wondrous. It's a wonderfully joyous time um, that they spend together. But to think that if any one of them professes Christ, they're going to be kicked out. They're, they're yeah. not going to yeah. be able to participate um, in, that, uh, in that Sabbath meal together. And so our family recognize that more important than our physical family is our spiritual family now. Mm-hmm. We have fellow brothers, yeah. sisters in Christ. That doesn't mean neglect your, your, your physical family. Um, you, you are to take care of them. You just read that passage from 1 Timothy 5 that, that says that. Um, but our brothers and sisters um, are, are those who are in Christ, and, and we look out for each other. We take care of each other. But it also assumes that we know each other. And in order to yeah. know each other, you have to get to know them yeah. by showing up, by participating um, in in uh, Bible studies, fellowship uh, events, uh, whatever have you, singing together, praying together. All those kinds of things helps bond people together. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you see it happen. Yeah, I mean, in reality— uh, the church, the local church is what we should build our lives around, yes. right? I mean, people build their lives around all kind of ungodly, worldly stuff, right? Whatever school ha- you think has the best education, people move across the country uh, to go to a school uh, to have their kids go to a particular high school or college. People move across the country uh, for a job that they hate. Uh, that doesn't make as much money as they want to, and yet they'll do that. They'll uproot their whole lives, um, but yet when we start talking about the church, it becomes an optional thing for most people. Um, totally yes. backwards, right? Yeah. And, and how we and should COVID, view the church. Yeah, and COVID, this whole COVID thing has revealed that too. Um, the attitudes of people that um, say, yeah, let's just keep staying shut down until everything is safe. And even in California, at one time, they had like a four-stage plan of reopening um, starting with the most essential businesses and working its way out. Well, the church was in the final stage. Um, so the yeah, church was yeah. deemed as less essential than anything and everything else. And if you are okay with that, you are essentially treating church like it's a commodity service, even yeah. less important than your local liquor store. Well, the church is not a commodity service. The church should be the center of spiritual community for all believers. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the church, you need to be thinking the bride of Christ, 
right? So the government says that the bride of Christ is less valuable than the strip clubs. The government says the bride of Christ is less valuable than the, than the casinos. The government says that the bride of Christ is less valuable than the abortion clinics, and many Christians have agreed with them by abstaining from the gathering. Yeah, and what is what does Ephesians 2 say? Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. All of those that you just mentioned, the abortion clinics, the casinos, the strip clubs, uh, liquor stores, um, you know, the the marijuana um, dispensaries, yeah. all of them were deemed essential um, during the shutdown. And, and what is that trying to point you towards? Well, the world wants you to fall further and further away from the truth of God. Yeah. Because if yeah. you engage in those activities, um, as, as a believer, first of all, you shouldn't engage. But if you were to engage as a believer, that's going to have a disastrous effect mm-hmm. upon your spiritual walk. And for someone who is not a believer, um, those are the exact kind of activities that they need to uh, repent of uh, when they come to yeah. Christ. Absolutely. A few more verses, brother. We want to leave people without any shadow of a doubt that committing to a local church is absolutely necessary for the professing believer. Um, just continue on in some in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those mm-hmm. who work hard at preaching and teaching. Well, why does that matter? Well, do you suppose that Paul is commanding Timothy to rule over everyone in Ephesus? No, (laughs) right? Of course not. Paul, the expectation is that he knows who he's meant to rule over, not heavy-handed rule, but who he's supposed to shepherd, who he's supposed to look after. It implies that there is a commitment, a two-way commitment, right? The commitment from the pastor, the shepherd, the elder, the bishop, uh, to look after the souls of the person and and the commitment uh, of the person to say, yes, I am a part of this group uh, and I'm being looked after by these leaders. Uh, so what's implied there in the text? Yeah. And, and when you say uh, bishop, uh, I want our hearers to understand we're not, <laughs> we're, we're not uh, elevating the uh, Catholic church. Yeah, why did I say bishop? Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, because the, the Greek word uh, is used presbyteros, which is often uh, translated as bishop. So it's just, it's just a title. The scriptures have many different words to yeah. talk about those who oversee. But uh, I, I will throw out 1 Peter 5. Um, 1 Peter mm. 5, uh, Peter says, therefore, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also Mm -hmm. of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, yet nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And then verse five, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders Mm -hmm. and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I love that. So he talks about younger men. And I would I would read this not merely as people who are younger in age, but people who are younger in the faith to be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Again, all of that implying that we are gathering together and the language to elders and shepherds to shepherd the flock among you assumes that there is a flock that has been allotted, and it even uses yeah. the word allotted to your charge, that has been assigned to, uh, to that shepherd. And we talk about pastors and shepherd. The Greek, it's the same word. Yeah. The word yeah. for used for pastor is the exact same word for used mm-hmm. for shepherd. And obviously, we think about Psalm 23, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning I will have no lacking um, when the Lord is my shepherd. Um, but that analogy also, when we think about shepherd and sheep, Jesus himself says that the shepherd knows the flock, right? Yeah. He's down his life for the flock. So there is an intimacy that is assumed uh, there between the shepherd and, and the flock, the pastor, and those who are a part of that church. Uh, yeah. There's a very close relationship that cannot be achieved in any other way aside from regularly gathering together. Yeah, we we can't ignore the language and what it implies, right? It, you know, I I my grandfather's a goat farmer, and so I grew up every summer on the goat farm. You know, he wasn't at all worried about the farms to the left or the right of him, right? Mm-hmm. He, he didn't care what was going on with the guys' goats on the right or the guys' sheep on the left. He was concerned with, you know, the 1,000 or 2,000 goats that he had, right? He was the shepherd for those. And, and the language is important, right? Because if you're going to shepherd people, 
that implies that you know exactly who you're shepherding. It also implies that all of those sheep know exactly who the shepherd is, right? right. Um, and there has to be a commitment um, in order for that to happen. Uh, Hebrews just kind of echoes uh, what you read. Thirteen seventeen says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for yeah, you. I, I think a lot of folks, you know, genuinely don't really understand what the role of a pastor is. Um, it, it, it is it is very simply one sentence that can be summarized in, right? Feed the flock of God among you. That, that's yeah. our job. Um, we weep over the people in our church. We pray for the people over our church. We pour our life into the people over the church, and we do it joyfully, um, hopefully not sorrowfully, but sometimes it happens too. Um, but and, and so the scripture here says that you submit to those leaders. Well, you can't do that if you're not committed to a local body, right? Yeah. I don't, you don't know how to pray for the person who only comes to church once every two months. Um, right. I, I have no idea what's, what's going on in, the, in their life, right? And nor are they submitting themselves, right, to you as the shepherd in the local church if, if they're not involved, if they're not committed, so we just have we have all these passages and and there are more you know there there are a lot more passages, and so for there you go for the guys who say well show me where membership is in the scripture well it's all throughout um, it, it's implied it's undeniable using the language that scripture uses um, you know language of family language of shepherding language of sheep. Um, the, the very gifts that God's given us in the fact that they're for one another, right? Um, you, you, can't, you, you can't exercise your gift for one another. You can't do any of the one another's if you're the only one, uh, right? If you live on an island under yourself, you, you cannot do the one another's because they're not for you. Um, yeah, it's all throughout Scripture. Amen. And even even the gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church, um, starting with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Ephesians 4.12 says these are for the equipping of these saints Mm -hmm. for the work of service to the building up of Mm -hmm. the body of Christ. And we would not say that the body of Christ is unimportant because that is the body of Christ, right? That's the, that's the, the people that Jesus Christ has died for. Well, how are they going to be built up? They're going to be built up by being equipped by these gifted men given to the church. And if you live apart from the church or if you try to um, break up the church into a bunch of um, artificial house churches, um, you're going to lose out on a lot of what God has designed for the church. Absolutely. And, you know, brothers, we're kind of wrapping this down. Let, let's just go to Hebrews 10, 23 and 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen and amen. Um, we need to be together. We need to do it to encourage one another. We, we don't, uh, a lone wolf Christian is a dead Christian. And uh, we, we do that um, all the way until Jesus Christ uh, returns. Amen. So believer, if you have not committed to a local church, do so. Find a healthy one, commit to it, join the membership, be an active part of the body of Christ, firstly and foremost, because you love God and you desire out of that love to be obedient. And secondly, because you love the bride of Christ and you want to edify her, you want to participate with her, you want to um, join and love the body of Christ. Do those things. Thank you guys for joining us. We hope that you have been edified. Uh, We would love to hear some feedback from you. Uh, You can do that by emailing us at truthbeknownpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our merch store. We've got some cool stuff there if you like mugs and t-shirts and that sort of thing. And until next time, let the truth be known. 
The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.